Hello, and welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of The Lord of the Rings. My name is Ellen. And my name is Anna, and in today's episode, we're discussing Book 1, Chapter 12, A Flight to the Ford, Exploring Healing in Community. I cannot believe that we have completed this first book. It's... It's bonks. It's it's quite it was a feat when we started. It felt mm-hmm. like it was going to be a really sort of prolonged experience and honestly it's felt really quite brief. Like I was surprised that we were already at at chapter 12 in the end of book 1. So I was googling because I was curious why in addition to the 3 books there are these 6 subsections sometimes called books, sometimes called volumes. And I learned that Tolkien wanted each one to have its own name. So it wasn't just like the Lord of the Rings volume one or the Lord of the Rings book one and book two, but like each one would have its own subtitle. And his publishers were like, this is really long and we need you to start, you know, tightening things up a bit. (laughs) I like that's where the editors drew the line, the publishers drew the line, not on the like four pages of um, Hobbit or Dwarf lineage, nor on any of the very extensive songs, but instead on the book titles as subbooks of the actual physical first book. And also the index at the end where all the footnotes are, they were like, this also needs to be shorter. You've done a lot. Do less. <laughs> So that's what, that's what I learned from Wikipedia today. <laughs> well, sure. Wow. Good Googling. Mm-hmm. Good work on that. Thank you. Does your book have the footnotes all the way at the end? No, it's just at the, it's like at the end of all six. Right. There is like the segment after the narrative in book three, volume six. Then there is also an appendix at the end of that. And that's what they were like, hey. <laughs> Maybe maybe we don't need all of this. And apparently, he also wanted the Cimmerillion to be a part of this as well. And they were like, mm, it's, uh, it's pretty long. Yes, that is referenced in a chapter we read recently. I, I can't recall if it was this chapter or not, but they talked about the Cimmerils being up in the hills and doing whatever else. And I thought to myself, self, that feels like the start of that rabbit hole mm-hmm. <laughs> down into a whole separate bit of information and a lot of knowledge, which I've not read. Have you? No. And like, maybe one day I will, but it's a lot to ask. Mm-hmm. Well, if this podcast really takes off, if listeners are just really jazzed about us talking to one another for extended periods, perhaps that is low on the list. <laughs> yeah, may- maybe. I would do The Hobbit before I, I dove into some new fiction. Mm-hmm. But uh, it might be a very healing experience to go read that, that book again. Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, I hear what you did there. Yes, thank you. Um, and with that smooth as a cucumber transition. Today we're here to talk about healing and community. Anna, do you have a story prepared to share with the listeners? I do have a story. 
so much like these books, my story as well comes in a couple of parts, a couple of volumes, as it were. The first part is a, a long while back, I was working at a place that had a leadership institute. And the whole purpose of this institute was to develop community around leadership, but to also really challenge and help us understand what leadership looks like in practice, and how often that our, our understanding of leadership can be qualified in pretty limited terms as far as who is a leader and how they lead. So the premise of this, in addition to learning about leadership, was that you had a couple of large group events, and then throughout the, I believe, nine months, your small group meets. And so you have a small group of maybe 10 folks, and you're really digging into the materials that are being discussed and the themes that are being discussed. So... Over the course of these weeks, you're developing a lot of trust with the group. You're getting to know people, you're getting to know their experiences. There is a bit of an expectation around being vulnerable to the point of maybe a slight discomfort so that the learning can be furthered. And I think that's really important to note because eventually we got to a point where we were sharing some experiences that were formative to us. And I shared an experience that I hadn't shared with a lot of other people, certainly not people that I had known for only the maybe seven months that we were together at that point. But I felt such a deep sense of trust for these individuals that it kind of came out and I wasn't expecting it to. And then I very like tearfully was trying to explain what was happening. And there was a very reverent quiet in the room as I was explaining this thing that had happened and they were all very kind and I was trying to kind of joke my way out of crying because I was embarrassed that I had gotten to that point and I was like I think I said something to the effect of like it's just so quiet in here and someone else said we're just honoring what you've entered into the room and I had never had such a thoughtful experience before around sharing something big, sharing something really weighty like that. And so that was really important to me, and that was the start to this healing process. So fast forward then to now, like, three or four years later... I'm starting to learn some of the hallmarks of trusting someone enough to share parts of that story or to share elements of that story and feel like they'll treat it with respect. And in doing so in another meaningful relationship that I was crafting at the time, someone was like, Anna, it sounds like maybe therapy would be a good fit for you to kind of like unpack more of this, like thanks for sharing this, but also I may not be the best person to help you heal. And I then pursued a therapy. So I was looking for a couple of options, how to do that best, found a space that really made sense to me, found a therapist who was really good, and have been on like a really sometimes hard, but often very rewarding experience of like, trying to be more vulnerable with someone who is a specialist and learning and healing along those lines. So as I was thinking about our chapter today, I was really reflecting on those two experiences and how it took a little bit of vulnerability and the and an, certainly a big element of trust and then the right circumstance to start the healing process for me. 
How do you think the people around you and the people that you were in relationship with affected the speed of this journey? Mm. Well, certainly in sharing the first time, I felt like I was really able to know who was in the room and what they would do with the story. And so that felt really important to me. There wasn't someone in there who would deny my experience or who would try and rationalize it to me, but who could kind of sit in that emotional space and just bear witness to it, which I think is a really big responsibility. And whether I could speak to it consciously and explicitly or not, clearly I had gotten the signals, at least implicitly, that this was a safe space for me to share an experience, and I was rewarded by that. And then because I had that experience, I was able to recognize it in others or to recognize maybe signs of concern a little more quickly in in future experiences so that I wasn't, you know, telling my story to just anybody who who may do with it what they will. And, And so it was just like absolutely thrilled then that I could recognize that in other folks and could replicate some of those same features that were a part of that community and other relationships that I was having. And that I too, um, as someone who may hear someone's experiences, could also be a good recipient in hearing their story because I, I had felt really validated in my experience and so I could maybe utilize some of those elements in any future experience that, that I had in receiving someone else's story too. Your story really reminds me of something that I am now getting better at, I think, as I progress through adulthood, but really did not come naturally to me, is how in tough moments, it is, it's just really better to go at it in a community or in a team rather than trying to, to fix things and to heal on your own. Mm-hmm. Like everyone needs to do, do work, you know, in their own and have some self-growth as well. But I think there is just so much to be said about being vulnerable and finding community and, and sharing your problems with others as a way to, to expedite healing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that becomes especially important when you may be seeking a community of people with similar experiences, because then you sort of have this starting point um, that's maybe more level than when you're coming into a, a group where not everybody may have that same experience. But certainly, if that's not the case, just to be able to trust that the person will listen to your full story and not try to heal you as though you are broken and they can save the situation, but instead to partner with you and really heal alongside you and to really have those conversations, I think is really, really important for folks to recognize. And to, uh, I think it's paramount to being able to heal from, from something that may have happened to you, whether physical, emotional, or psychological, for sure. And then I know we did say in the last episode that uh, we are not 
mental health experts. And I just wanted to call that out again. Like we're sharing our stories and we're talking about things. And if that's helpful to you, then that's great. And also that there are skilled professionals who may be better witnesses to your story if you're looking to start on a journey of healing. Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up again, Anna. Just two sisters with a podcast. That's true. Well, thank you for that story, Anna. I think it really does tie well into what Frodo is experiencing here in this chapter that we're that we're discussing. And I, I'm guessing that uh, what you shared will relate to a lot of listeners as well. So having said that, um, what happens in this chapter, Ellen, other than a whole heck of a lot? Yeah, wow. This was a jam-packed, action-filled little treat of a chapter, so lots happens. If you recall, we left Frodo passed out. You know, he, he falls unconscious at the end of the last chapter. It's very much a cliffhanger. And the chapter begins with him waking up, and his friends are so happy that he has awoken and, and is alive. He does feel pain in his shoulder, where he was pierced by one of the Nine's swords, and he can't feel his arm. It is numb, it is cold, and it is causing him a lot of pain. Aragorn, who is, we're learning now, an accomplished healer, goes out into the woods and finds this magical medicinal plant called Athalas that he uses to help begin the healing process, but Frodo's wound is beyond the skill that he has to, to solve while they're on the road. They begin the journey from Weathertop to the House of Elrond, um, with Frodo on the pony and his friends very kindly carrying all of his things. They run into the trolls that if you have read The Hobbit, you will remember when Bilbo and the dwarves come across the trolls, which they, they do mention here in this in this story. So the trolls are stone because they cannot live in the light. Sam sings a very goofy song that he has made up himself to cheer everybody up. This is when the sun is out, the they're laughing, and it's, you know, the high point as far as mood for the chapter. They continue on, there's bad weather, and then <gasps> they hear clippity-clop, clippity-clop. There is a horse chasing them. But wait, it's not the Nine, it is Glorfindel, the elf lord. And he's there to help get them to Rivendell much quicker than they've been going. They are almost there. They're at this river ford thing that they that they need to cross. And then the nine are upon them. Luckily, Frodo is on Glorfindel's horse. So he runs away super, super quick. <laughs> I... I'm not sure how he gets past the horses of the nine that are, like, literally guarding the ford. It says in the book that there's, like, a breath of cold and he shuts his eyes and then he's across. And I'm like, okay, I don't, you know, good on him. Probably some elf magic. And then there is this standoff where the nine are on one side of the river and Frodo is on the other side. And he's like, you can't take me to Mordor. I'm staying right here. And then the horse water comes and it washes them away. And that's the end of the chapter. Well told. 
Thank you. I really wanted to capture some of the excitement that I felt reading it. Uh, yes, there was, and I thought it was uh, a story choice that you were making and doing the clippity clap. And then as I flipped through the chapter, turns out that's actually written in there. So yeah, that's what it says. That was just a direct retelling. Yep, clippity clap. Um, and I, my brain rested on that because I tried to actually imagine what that would sound like, and I was like, oh, the horse is really running. But the quote is actually clippity clippity clip. <laughs> Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna get right in there uh, a light clippity clippity clip and so I was imagining like okay this horse is is really moving it's not like it's following them at a trot it is galloping towards them I also learned the word headstall which is the thing that goes over the horse's face Mm. I thought it was called a bridle Mm-hmm. But it's called a headstall, mm-hmm. and Glorfindel's horse's headstall flickered and flashed as if it were studded with gems like living stars. Mm-hmm. So, he's a fancy horse. He's so fancy. So fancy. Yes, I I want to come back to that section where, that you were talking about where they're all on the riverbank, the nine R. Mm. So it says, but the pursuers were close behind. This is on my page two forty one. At the top of the bank, the horses halted and turned about neighing fiercely. There were nine riders at the water's edge below, and Frodo's spirit quailed before the threat of their uplifted faces. He knew of nothing that would prevent them from crossing as easily as he had done, and he felt that it was useless to try to escape over the long, uncertain path from the ford to the edge of Rivendell if once the riders crossed. In any case, he felt that he was commanded urgently to halt. Hatred again stirred in him, but he had no longer the strength to refuse. Suddenly, the foremost rider spurred his horse forward. It checked at the water and reared up. With a great effort, Frodo sat upright and brandished his sword. And that's when he starts shouting. So he, like, not only makes it across the river, but then he's also, like, seems, like, hesitating on the other edge of the river. Right. Where then he goes, oh, yeah, like, if they can do this as easily as I just did this, then I don't know what we're going to do, because... Because then they're just going to be here and we're going to have the same issue on the other half of this river. Right. And then their their horses are like, hmm, about this water thing. Yeah, not feeling it. We're not jazzed about this. This is, listen, I don't <laughs> like, I don't like to compare the book and the movies because, and for anything, because they are very different. The two exceptions for me are Ella Enchanted because... The movie is trash and the book is great. Ellen, we have no amount of time to get into that. That could be our own. That'll be our spinoff podcast okay. because I have so much to say. That book, as you well know, right. was treasured cherished, in our hearts and mm-hmm. in our household. Mm-hmm. And thusly, we had high expectations for the movie, which were not even remotely met. Right. And if you would like to hear a rant at some point in the future, just ask us about the Ella Enchanted movie. God bless Anne Hathaway, but it was a horrible, it was a horrible cinematic failure in my eyes. Yep. I have my slideshow ready. We'll just pull it up on my phone and we can click through the the presentation. (laughs) Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. (laughs) And then the other one is the first Lord of the Rings Because the movie, I feel like it brings such urgency to the flight from the Shire. And then also this moment Mm. 
like, I thought Frodo was near death, and now here he is, you know, waving his sword around, saying, like, just kidding, I'm staying right here. The movie version is so, it's just so much better. The character development is better. The plot makes more sense that way. Mm -hmm. The way it is written here, I don't understand how Frodo doesn't die. Right. And I, I was so confused because I had it in my mind's eye that when we were in this chapter, that when Frodo awoke, it was him at Rivendell waking up and then discovering his friends and then it was like a flashback and then it took me a bit to reorient that no he was simply awake still at Weathertop. right so that took a whole level of adjustment and then as we get to the end of the chapter i was kind of reminded again that he's not in he's not yet in rivendell he's not yet safe this isn't a flashback so this is frodo like from his point of view just navigating the situation, leaving entirely aside the whole group of individuals who has gotten him to this point. Mm -hmm. So we've just met Glorfindel. He's on his horse and Aragorn and the rest of the Hobbit crew are just like, what are they doing at this point? Like, where are they? Well, what's happening? So we, here's what we know. Right. We know Glorfindel says... You should run away because the Nine don't give a flying you-know-what about us, and they're not going to chase us. They're going to chase you. Right, right. And then right at the end, we see, before he passes out again, this is just, you know, flanked by fainting Frodo's. (laughs) The riders are hesitating on the shore. A shining figure of white light, and behind it ran small, shadowy forms waving flames that flared red in the gray mist that was falling over the world. So as he's fainting, his friends have now fiery torches and are running at the horses to further spook them into the water. Mm-hmm. So I guess they were like, I don't know, lighting fires in the background, like huddled somewhere. Right. And again, ha- what is happening in the water, right? Like, Yeah, where's Arwen to like yes. call upon her ancestors to bring the, the rise the waters and bring the horses? It's just Frodo. Right, right. So it says, At that moment there came a roaring and a rushing, a noise of loud waters rolling many stones. Dimly Frodo saw the river below him rise, and down along its course there came a plumed cavalry of waves. White flames seemed to Frodo to flicker on their crests, and he half fancied that he saw amid the water white riders upon white horses with frothing manes. The three riders that were still in the midst of the ford were overwhelmed, they disappeared, buried suddenly under angry foam. Those that were behind drew back in dismay. So that's where the movie I almost found to be helpful, although I su- suspect that Tolkien here is is meaning for the reader to be confused. Mm. But in my mind, because I loved so deeply that, that scene in the movie where Liv Tyler, mm-hmm. who is fabulous, is like, riding really hard on her horse with a sad little bundle that is Frodo who can barely stay conscious. <laughs> Gray-faced Elijah Wood. 
Right. And then, like, she scampers across this river and then, as you said, in fabulous elven tongue, calls her ancestors to come and wash the scum that are these nine riders away. And so because I had that experience in my mind, I was drawing a connection to that white figure on the banks as Glorfindel, who's speaking in Elvish and calling up this river. But I don't Mm -hmm. know that anybody who hadn't seen that scene could reasonably ascertain that is what's happening because it feels like way too big of a logical leap that someone could like speak to the water and call it to rise up when we've not seen elven magic in any kind of direct way up until this point in the book i don't think mm-hmm. so i don't know it's a very uh very confusing end i'm sure done intentionally but c- quite the wild ride Yeah, which is funny to me because I feel like normally the book explains things better than the movie and then the movie cuts stuff out for for time to help things move along. But this seems to be the opposite. That's right. And I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read this book. So I honestly don't recall where book two of the first book of, you know, Fellowship of the Rings, I have no idea where that picks up. (laughs) so now i'm feeling even more hesitant to be like okay (laughs) we are now at the where where you expect to be right great well i'm glad we you know maybe sorted that out a little bit there's a a little bit of mystery but i do want to talk about our theme for this chapter do you have some examples to share with the listeners i do the first one to talk about is right at the very beginning of the chapter. It's a very good place to start. Start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So the first maybe mention of healing is from Aragorn slash Strider, who's talking about the knife wound that Frodo has sustained. So Strider says on page 223, Alas, he cried, it was this accursed knife that gave the wound. Few now have the skill in healing to match such evil weapons, but I will do what I can. And I like this quote for a couple of reasons. It really made me think about, one, Strider as a character, we're learning a lot more about him. So within the book, we're learning, as you mentioned, that he's a skillful healer, but still not skilled enough to heal this very nasty wound that Frodo has sustained. And that made me think about the type of injury that we sustain from which we heal really requires different kinds of healing and different levels of skill contingent on what the what the injury is. So in thinking about the healing process, I think it's really important to kind of understand the extent to which you've been injured, again, whether physically, emotionally, or psychologically, and then to make sure that there is the right skill set there to help you heal. And that isn't always the same person depending on the injury. And And Strider does a really good job of acknowledging that. So I thought that was important. Yes, I am now. I know earlier I said that he doesn't have the skill to heal this. But now the quote that you read me, is it that he doesn't have the skill or he doesn't have the tools as they are running through the woods to do so? That's a that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. The way that I read it was that he's going to do what he can, mm-hmm. but 
he's he's not going to be able to cure the injury. Mm-hmm. So I guess that does leave it a bit vague as to whether the process is so complex that not any one person really could cure it entirely and mm-hmm. that he'll just kind of do what he can for it or if it's that I'm kind of a rough, like, stateless individual. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'll patch you together as I would me in this situation, and then we'll get to our destination, and there will be skilled healers there who can assist. The The latter is how I read it, but I don't know that it makes it quite as clear now that I'm thinking about it. So he brings, he brings Athalas, mm-hmm. and he says, this is the thing that, like, the fragrance from the steam, it comes up and it, it helps Frodo feel better. But also the book says, quote, those that were unhurt felt their minds calmed and cleared. Mm-hmm. Do you have something that is your Athalas? And I, I thought of this so I, I can go first. For me, even when I'm unhurt, something that calms and clears the mind would be like a cup of hot cocoa and an episode of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> It's healing, but also when I'm not healed, it is calming and, you know, it brings, it brings joy. Mm -hmm. I think a walk is often that for me. So just to move my body, but at a gentle pace and be outside, getting a breath of fresh air, maybe seeing something new. That is often a, a moment of clarity for me, even when I'm not hurt or harmed, that can be a good space for me to just to kind of clear my mind and think. Interesting. That's a, that's good to know. So right, so I had this Othalos also as a as an interesting healing experience, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of like patching you through, but not not solving the root of the issue. So that was another example that I had for sure. And Frodo kind of thinks about this, right? On 224, he wonders to himself if he would remain maimed for life and how they would now manage to continue their journey, he felt too weak to stand. So, you know, as I was thinking about folks who are on a journey, often it feels the most challenging before you ever begin. And so because Frodo's just received this and is kind of left without a lot of resources to address the harm that he's now feeling almost despondent, it feels like, in this statement of, like, oh, God, is this my lot in life forever? And so that was kind of an interesting thought to me. Right, but he he makes it, like, another week of travel. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's a lot of time between this injury, him waking up, and then making it to stand off against the nine. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole week. Right, and he has all that strength at the end of the chapter, like we were talking about, to shout at, like, nine ringwraiths, and they're... Not today, Satan! That's right! Yeah, he shouts down these, like, evil, ghostly wraith men who have lost themselves to evil, essentially, and to whom Frodo has been, like, subjected both in terror up until this point and then physical harm, and yet he has the strength to stand and to shout at them from this horse across a river that he's like, oh, shoot, can they cross this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Go, Frodo, go. Our sweet bean, our sweet little pony is healing. Billiam. Billiam. That's mentioned on 225. 
So they talk about removing some of the baggage around the group so that it's, um, so that Frodo's able to ride. And so it says from 224 to 225, it was impossible for Frodo to walk, so they divided the greater part of their baggage among the four of them and put Frodo on the pony. In the last few days, the poor beast had improved wonderfully. It already seemed fatter and stronger and had begun to show an affection for its new masters, especially for Sam. Bill Fernie's treatment must have been very hard for the journey in the wild to seem so much better than its former life. And I think that just helped me think about sometimes when harm is done to us, all it takes is a shift in the people around us to begin to heal and to actualize ourselves and to be really then intentional about who you spend your time with. Mm -hmm. You don't want a Bill Fernie, you want a Sam. Oh yeah, 100%. And then kind of through the rest of the chapter... Certainly 225, 226, they're really talking about, you know, Frodo's kind of managing his his pain and his discomfort, but still trying to kind of keep up with the group, try and carry his weight literally through the rest of the journey um, as they as they walk to Rivendell. And I was thinking, too, about, you know, he's trying to heal, but he's also kind of in the midst of this harm. And... Sometimes we can't know the struggles that others are going through as they're journeying. And it may be that, you know, Frodo's companions aren't aware to the extent that he's really challenged or struggling. And so just to be, I was kind of thinking about how to recognize harm and that harm carries on even in ways that we can't necessarily see for people we may know. And so how to be like attentive to that in ways that are appropriate was something I was thinking about. I'd missed that. That's a, a good example and a and a good lesson to draw from that. And then the last really was about the trolls. The trolls. The trolls, which are all in stone, and as Ellen mentioned, are, you know, from The Hobbit. And that there's kind of this moment of, once they realize that it's the, the trolls are not live and so not a threat to the party, there's this moment of levity, and I think Frodo makes mention of feeling really almost in awe of Bilbo, that this was not a story that Bilbo told to him that stretched the truth to its, you know, furthest possible stretch, but instead was something that had actually happened, and here he was in that space. And I was thinking about how healing can also look like the stories that others tell us when they've been in that space before and to recognize that maybe as a lifeline out of either the physical space or the or the emotional space and to kind of recall that you aren't the first to be there seems particularly helpful and it certainly seems to raise Frodo's spirits just a bit. Yeah I like that that section of the chapter when they're all hanging out and I'll also note there, it says, quote, The sun, too, was warm and comforting, and the mist before his eyes seemed to be lifting a little. And I think having heard Bilbo's story, knowing that someone has been here before and made it out in a fun adventure, and then also the sun being out is just such a, a warm, healing moment. My mood is dramatically improved when the weather outside is pleasant. Mostly the, when the sun is out. So I, I really feel for Frodo and the team here that they're having a good time now that the sun has finally come back out again and the rain has stopped. Mm -hmm. And then Sam comes up with his endearing 
song that he makes up just on the spot. So it seems like the whole group is rallying what energy they have left to make it to their destination. I had one more example that I wanted to bring. It was at the beginning of the chapter on page 223, where Frodo is sort of snoozing and his arm hurts a lot and he's cold. And it says, quote, his friends watched over him, warming him and bathing his wound. And that reminded me of what we were talking about with your story and how important it can be to have a community around you as you are healing. And here his friends are taking a very active role in that process. And it, it's just, it's nice to see them working as a team to support Frodo. Yes, they're very literally tending to the wounds of one of their own and likely are keeping Frodo from perishing right then and there at Aragorn's instruction. So I think, yeah, I, that's nice that you call that out because I think that is a really important nugget, especially when we think about community. Is there anything else from this chapter that you want to bring up before we transition? I'm glad that you brought the pronunciation of Othalos. I was at a loss to know how to do that. <laughs> um, and so I, I just want to name I'm really appreciative of that and also the pronunciation of Glorfindel because I just mm-hmm. was not sure how to how to approach either of those. Yes, and if anyone wants to fight us on those, we got those pronunciations from the audiobook. So you can take that up with the guy who read it back in the 90s. <laughs> Find his Twitter account. <laughs> write, write him a letter mm-hmm. with your thoughts. That's not our takeaway, Adam. Yeah, absolutely not. We are not <laughs> encouraging you to harass some audiobook voice actor. Mm-hmm. Speaking of takeaway item, Anna, what do you have today for the listeners to do to strengthen their community? Your transitions have been on point today. Thank you. Thank you. You can't see me, but I'm brushing things off my shoulder. Oh, I assumed that there was some sort of shimmy as you went, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Also, not out of the question. Right. Okay, so my action items. We've talked a lot about these throughout the episode, but I wanted to say them a bit more explicitly. So... If you are on a healing journey from something, give it time, especially if you aren't removed from that situation fully or at all. So if you, like Frodo, are still running away from the Nine Riders, you may be having a hard time healing, and that's okay, because you're in the thick of it. But also to be wary of someone who is not skilled enough to help you heal, or who is offering you healing, just be really intentional about who you let into those stories and kind of think about what they're they're offering you in those spaces. And like we said, if you're not sure, perhaps pursuing a professional healer who is skilled and able to assist you on your journey is the best option for you. So certainly if you're in a position to do that, I, I do recommend it. Therapy has been very helpful for me. And then if you're in community with someone who is healing. Remember to believe their story. Remember to know where your own skill set lies and to offer help accordingly. And sometimes that can be calling your friend and saying, I'd like to have some hot cocoa and watch Gilmore Girls with you. And that is that is a healing process. 
So really reach out and be be responsible about what you're able to offer to your friend who may need some healing in this moment. Thank you for that, Anna. And I hope we will be in the same space again soon so that we can hot chocolate and Gilmore Girls as a pair. For sure. Today's podcast was brought to you by Othalos, a healing plant. For clearer, calmer minds, try Othalos. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dom. If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community, stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in Fellowship. I liked also your phrase, smooth as a cucumber. Not familiar with that, but um, that was a fun introduction. I couldn't think of anything that was smooth in that moment. (laughs) I was like, "Mm, butter is smooth. (laughs) Cucumbers are pretty smooth. Are they? (laughs) They're kind of knobby, aren't they? Uh, Like when you slice them? You know, the inside bit. <laughs> Smooth sure. as silk. I should have guessed that. I am sitting in my closet. Um, and there is a, <laughs> a silk or maybe faux silk dress here. Anyway, we're here for your story, not to go through my wardrobe. So please lead us uh, into this next segment. <laughs> <laughs>